Thanks for joining us here at Temple Baptist Church in Centralia, Illinois, where we are a community of people who are not perfect and don't pretend to be. If you would like to see other resources or learn more about our ministry, check out www.tbccentralia.com. Our hope and prayer is that through the following message, you are encouraged, blessed, and inspired to meet the Lord in a powerful way. Uh, we are in week two of a three-week series. The, the three-week series is called Religious Words. And if you have spent any time around church or church people, you'll know that we use words that sometimes th no one else in America in 2020 are using. And uh, last week, the word that I introduced was hallelujah. All right. And hallelujah um, is a Hebrew word. And it's, a, it's actually two, two words put together. And the first word is hallel, which means to boast in God. Now, that you in there means everybody. So it really doesn't mean like you boast in God. It means everybody boast in. And then Yah is a shortened form of Yahweh boasting God. And so we learned about that word last week. And this week, I'm going to uh, talk to you about a different subject. And, and what I want to talk to you today is a word that makes Christianity different from other religions. You see... There are a lot of different people who consider themselves to be spiritual. They consider themselves to be religious. And they have a, a, a religion that they follow. But when you sit down and you take an inventory of all the religions of the world, most religions have a requirement on their people. Now, I would guess that you would walk away with any experience with Christians that we as Christians put... Um, requirements on ourselves but what makes Christianity different than all the other religions is this word that I'm going to talk to you today about and that's the word grace you see grace we find in the New Testament over 150 times and one thing if you see something over and over again it tells you that it's important to the author and so this subject of grace is not just important to the author it's what makes christianity special you know john newton wrote a song called amazing grace and you know that is a great description of the word grace amazing but i got to be honest with you today you know that's good to do as a pastor <laughs> that we in the church have taken amazing grace and we have made it a cheap grace. We as Christians, we have taken the, the grace that God poured on us and gave to us freely and we've changed it. One of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey, wrote a book titled Vanishing Grace. And in that book, he shares um, a Barna survey. And in this survey, when people who were not associated with Christianity people who um, really weren't even associated with religion necessarily, they were asked to describe evangelicals or Christians in one word. These are the words that they came up with. Illiterate. Greedy. Psychos. Racist. Stupid. Narrow-minded. Bigots. 
idiots, fanatics, nutcases, screaming loons, delusional, simpletons, pompous, morons, cruel, nitwits, freaks. That's what people who really had no interaction with Christians, with evangelicals, those are the words that they describe us. And what most people really don't know is what evangelicals or what Christians are really all about. And all they know is that they can't stand us. And what I would tell you is that for us, the issue shouldn't be whether or not we agree with someone and they agree with us. But the issue for us as Christ followers who embrace this word grace is that this. How do we treat those whom we profoundly disagree with? Because that's where grace gets involved. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., he said this. He said, we fight with the different weapons. And the weapon that he wanted to fight with was grace. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you in the Bible where grace is used. And so if, and normally you would look at uh, where it first began, and, and you might think that if you turn in your Bibles, and, and, and what I would tell you is if you're writing notes, just write these down because I'm going to go through these very quickly and we're going to end up in Genesis. But um, in Titus chapter 2 is where we see the word grace used. In verse 11 it says it this way, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. These words were written in AD 65, not quite 2,000 years ago. It's incredible. This is one of the best understandings of the word grace. But, you know, Titus isn't where I want to park today. If you uh, turn back a few books, you'll come across John. In John chapter 1, in verse 14, this was written around AD 50, about 15 years before the book of Titus was. And the, and the word says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, the reality is this, that the church has worked tirelessly on the truth part. We got the truth down. You can see this when you look at church councils. For years, through the first centuries, um, even up to today, we do a good job of defining what we're for. And the problem is that those outside of this church, they don't hear about what we're for. What do they hear about? What we're against. And then if you go through church history documents, you'll see church creeds. And, and these are beautiful words. These are words that help establish and help build up our faith. But these creeds divide us from those around us. These creeds sometimes leave grace behind and embrace only the truth. Or if you continue, you, if you look that there are volumes of books on theology pastor was just sharing with me at, at the last um, annual IBS me, IBSA meeting that there was a pastor who had passed away and he had over 19,000 books in his library and his wife brought those and they put them on display for pastors to take and, and put them into their library. You know, uh, we as Christ followers, it's easy for us to collect book after book after book to, to really dig into theology and understand what we believe and why we believe it. 
you'll find out that there's denominational splits over minor points of doctrine. Things that, you know, God doesn't even look twice at, and we will divide ourselves from fellow Christians and Christ followers. You'll find out that there's church division over matters that mean nothing beyond these walls, whether it's the color of the carpet, whether it's a pew or chairs, whether there's hymn books or we put it up on the screen. You'll find Christians that divide ourselves. And the problem with that is that the church is perceived more as a guilt dispenser than a grace dispenser. And that's not why Jesus came from heaven. Well, if we continue to look, you'll realize that the word grace is not just a New Testament word. If you would turn in your Bibles or write this down, Exodus chapter 34. And I'm going to read verse 6 to you, and it says this. And the Lord passed by him, by, before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here in 1400 B.C., these words were written, and God himself described, him, described himself as a gracious God. But, but that's not where grace started. you got to go 900 years earlier, all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis chapter 6, I would encourage you to open your Bibles. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. And so here in around 2350 B.C., these words were written. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and the daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be in a hundred and twenty years. Now there's a lot to be said between those three verses. You know, one of those is, now this is before the flood. This is a time when um, just 1,600 years or 1,500 years after the creation of the earth as we know it. And one of the things is that, and, and, and if you talk to theologians, many disagree over this, but what did that mean that the sons of God came down and saw the, the wives of men and that they were fair and the daughters of men that they were beautiful? What happened was the angels that had fallen, they came and became a part of this earth. And they started doing things that God had not ordained. And they started corrupting what God had in planned. And this all started back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve ate of the apple. And this all started when God pronounced to Satan that the seed of woman would destroy you one day. And so he set out doing everything he possibly can to destroy the human race. In verse 4, it says, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came, and unto the daughters of men they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. If you do any kind of historical study, you'll find that there's legends that, you know, for example, Hercules was the offspring of a god and a woman. 
Well, you don't have to, to read the stories about Hercules. You read about it in Genesis. In verse 5, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In verse 6, it says, He repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Now, church, I want you to understand something. God did not destroy this earth because of minor sin. God destroyed this earth because Satan was doing everything he can to corrupt human flesh. And God didn't want that. And so in verse 8, it says this, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You see, there was nothing about Noah that he deserved it. It was that God looked at him and picked him, chose him. In verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And let me just explain what that means is. When it says he was perfect in his generation, what it means is that his bloodline wasn't corrupted. That everyone in his bloodline was of human origin. And then when it says that Noah walked with God, understand this, that God didn't choose Noah and give grace to him because he walked with God. It was when God chose Noah that Noah began to walk with God. So what do we do with this? How do we take this word grace? How do we unpack it? How do we use it? How do we bring it back to the form that God established it? And the first thing I want you to understand is that for us to receive grace, we must first realize that we need grace. You see, Noah saw the evil that was all around him. He saw the evil that God saw. And he kept his family out of that. And because of that, when God decided that he was going to destroy the earth as we know it at that time, and he chose Noah to continue what he started in the Garden of Eden 1,500 years before. But when it comes to grace, there's a couple things that we all need to understand. And the first is this, that grace cannot be earned. You see, there is nothing that we can do to, that's going to make God love us any more than he already loves us. As humans, we don't understand that concept. Because we are so about, what have you done for me lately? We are so about, show me, prove to me that you love me. And yet God has already done that. There's a Barna survey, and it, it referred to born-again believers. Now, understand this. This is a survey to born-again, Christ-following, people who have proclaimed to be saved. And here's what these born-again believers profess to happen. This has happened in their life in the last 30 days. Gambling. They watch pornography on the Internet. They had stolen something within the last 30 days. They had gone to a psychic within the last 30 days. They were guilty of abusing someone, whether physically or verbally, within the last 30 days. 
They had been in a physical fight with somebody within the last 30 days. They had taken illegal drugs and put them into their body within the last 30 days. They lied within the last 30 days. They had gotten drunk within the last 30 days. They said mean things about their friends in the last 30 days. These are Christ followers. These are people who profess to be Christian. And what, thank God, when we look at grace, you'll find out that there's so much more to it. Um, If you look at Christians, you look at Christ followers, you'll find out that the divorce rate is no different among us than people who've never gone to church a day in their life. You'll find out that sexual abuse and sexual promiscuity is just as rampant in the church as it is outside of the church. You will find out that here in the church, those of us that come and call ourselves and are here every week, only 9% actually give a tithe. In the church, you will see overt racist behaviors. When you think of the Catholic church, what is the moral high ground that the Catholic church has? And that's their fight against abortion. But here's the reality, that Catholics have more abortions than the national average. So I say all of these hard things about us as the church, as Christ followers. This isn't just those people in the surveys. These are the people who are sitting here today. This is the the person that stands before you. And thankfully, I can tell you that not only can grace not be earned, but grace cannot be lost. You see... There's nothing that you can do that will make God love you any less. There's none of those actions that I just listed that disqualifies you from claiming the name of Christ. There's nothing that I brought before you that tells you that you should never ever come back to church. It's because of the word grace you should be back at church every Sunday. And the problem isn't that we can't receive grace. The problem is this, that our hypocrisy drives away unbelievers from the church. You know, the early church got it down. The early church was a church of attraction where people wanted what those early church followers had. Why? Because they had embraced grace. They had seen Jesus walk among them. They had realized, I mean, think about Paul. Paul wasn't just somebody. He was somebody who murdered lots of Christians. And yet God used him to write more of the New Testament than any other author. Think about David. David's a great example of what not to do. And yet God called him a man after his own heart. Well, to receive grace, you've got to realize what grace is not. Years ago, I worked in a bank, and one of the things that they wanted us to to find was counterfeit money that came in. Has anybody ever been insulted when you went to Walmart, and you gave them a $20 bill, or you gave them a $100 bill, and they pull it out, and they they put a marker on it, and hold it up to the light? Yeah, checking to see if it's real. Well, as a, a bank employee, one of the things was they never, ever, you know, brought a bunch of counterfeits to us and showed us what they looked like. Instead, what they did was have us count regular, real money. And then when they would stick a counterfeit somewhere in there, and we would, we would feel the difference, and we would recognize the difference right away. 
And so um, the reality is that when it comes to grace, many of us as Christ followers, we don't know what real grace feels like. And we don't recognize it when we're not living out real grace. And we think what we have and what we're offering is grace, and it's far from what God tells us about. Maybe one of the best ways I can talk to you about what grace is is about what grace is not. And I think of the story of how that, if, if let's just say a robber came into my house and, and when uh, my, my son's lived with us and while he's in the house, I hear the noise, I go out there and I, I yell at him to get out and before he leaves, he points a gun and he squeezes the trigger and it misses me. But one of my sons was in the room with me and it hits him and kills him instantly. And I look back and I see that and, and rage comes into my eyes. And I see him run out the door and I chase him down. And three blocks down, I catch him, I tackle him. His gun falls away. I pick up the gun and stand over him and I pull the trigger and I kill him. Now you know that's not grace, right? That's revenge. Well, same story. Same robber, same house, same son. Only this time when I catch him, I pick up the gun and I hold him and then I wait until the police come. And the police come and they arrest him. He's brought before a, a jury of his peers. He's found guilty and he's sent to prison. Well, that's not grace either. That's justice. Same story, same house, same robber, same guy, same son. chase him down and I'm standing before him the police come he's found guilty and at the sentencing portion they ask do I have any words to say and I tell the judge I tell the jury don't convict him don't send him to jail even that's not grace that's mercy So let me share with you what grace really is. If you read about grace, you'll find out that the description of it is of the ocean. Um, when you look at what grace looks like and what grace feels like, an ocean is what it's described to us. Matter of fact, the words are unmerited favor. Anyone ever go to a school where you got demerits? If you did something bad, they, and, and if you got so many within a semester, you were put in suspension or um, kept out of school for a while. I mean, that happened to me. But you see, God's not a God of merits and demerits. God's a God of unmerited favor. He's a God of grace. You know, Titus chapter 2 if you, if you turn back there, you'll see something. In verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Well, what does that mean if the grace of God has appeared to us? What's the impact? Well, the impact is in verse 12 where it says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, all of those statistics that I gave you about what's going on in the church, it doesn't demonstrate people that are living and denying ungodliness. People that are denying their worldly lust. 
People that are living soberly and righteously and godly. That's not what it's describing. But here's what you need to understand is that grace first saves us in Titus 11, 2.11. And then in verse 12, once it saves us, it changes us. And so here's the reality about grace is that no one is beyond grace. If Paul, a murderer, isn't beyond grace, if David, an adulterer and a murderer, and a, someone with way too many wives, if he's not beyond grace, I promise you there's no one sitting in this room today that is beyond grace. And so as I think about grace and I think about it being in an ocean, I think that most of us, when it comes to God's grace, we're standing on the shore. We're standing on the beach. And we see the waves roll in. But you know, the ocean is out there. A couple years ago, we celebrate something each October. We call it, I call it October. And our family gets together. And on this occasion, we were down in Destin, Florida, and we went, decided we were going to the beach, and we went to the beach, and the problem was that it was a red flag. And I don't know if you are familiar with the beaches, but the red flag means that it's a very dangerous situation. And so the waves were crushing in. Matter of fact, as you would walk out into the water, I mean, it would be, you would get a workout as like just heavy waves would hit you. And what they told us was that nobody should be in the water. But it's October. Our family's together. The weather was nice. And so we decided we were going to get into the water. And so Carrie and I were in the water at one portion. And our two sons, and uh, at that time our oldest son was married. And, and his wife was in the water. And, and they kept going out a little further. And, and as a father, I kind of felt anxious. But you know what? They're grown adults. They, they know what they're doing. And then about 20 minutes later, we all got back together on the shore. And our daughter-in-law relayed to us this, that the, there was an undercurrent. And it grabbed a hold of her and pulled her under. And she couldn't. She, there was no way for her to swim out of it. And, and it's one of those times where like time stands stills and, and three seconds seems like three minutes. And she says out of nowhere, her husband, Colin, reaches in and grabs her and pulls her out of the water. And no sooner does she come up and, and she finally can breathe that the lifeguard starts screaming at them, get out of there. And they come to the shore and they share that story with us. You know, when I think about that, that's when I see God's grace. And it's, it's not even when we're that close to the shore. It's get, go out further. Go out there without a boat. Go out there without a life jacket. And that's the case that all of us find ourselves in this world. Every one of us are floating in this world of grace. And there are going to be times when the water pulls you under. There are going to be times when life throws some curveballs to you and, and, and it sucks you in. And there's a hand that will reach down and grab you if you call out for help. There's a gentleman by the name of Kevin Roos and 
He graduated from Brown University, and, and he was very critical of Christians. He was very critical of evangelicals. And then he looked around and he said, you know what? I don't have any Christian friends. I have Muslim friends. I have Hindu friends. I have every religion along the spectrum, but I don't have any Christian friends. And yet here I am, I'm casting judgment on them. And so even after he had graduated from Brown University, he enrolled into Liberty University. Great place, my alma mater. And what he found out after spending a year, and he embedded, he didn't come in there as who he was and what he believed. He came in there to see what they were really like. And what he found out was the stereotypes that I've talked to you about, that when, I, when people ask for one word of, that describes Christians, what he found out was those did not apply. We weren't bigots. We weren't idiots. We weren't simpletons. And what he found out was that Christians were t- 12 times more likely to give money to foreign missions than to political activism. And so he walked away from that experience recognizing that Christians certainly weren't the stereotypes that, that are portrayed. So why do they still exist? They exist because we as Christians have never on a regular, daily basis, tasted of God's grace. And so I close with this question to you. Have you tasted of God's grace? Genesis 6-3, this is what the word of God said, and it was this. My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in 120 years. And 120 years later, the flood came upon this earth, and only those people who were in the ark were saved. I'm here to tell you that your heavenly Father, the creator of this world, says that my spirit will not always strive with you. If you have not experienced, if you have not tasted of God's grace, I would challenge you today, if you've never ever asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, don't walk out these doors because you have no guarantee that you'll make it home. You have no guarantee that tonight you'll be able to lay your head down on the pillow. Taste of the grace that God offers. And and maybe there's another group in here that you have asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Yet you know, when I started talking about the things that that born-again believers profess to have done in the last 30 days, that if, if I were asking people to raise their hands, you would have raised your hand a couple times. Now, folks, that doesn't make you a bad Christian. That makes you a human. But what I offer you today is to taste the grace that God gives afresh. Because here's what I've experienced. When I fall short of what God wants of me, it's easy for me to withdraw from God. It's easy for me to be that hypocrite that everybody sees when they see a Christian. It's easy for me to not pick up the Bible and read it. It's easy for me to to not fall on my knees and go to God in prayer. If it's easy for me, what situation are you in? 
I just want to share with you, church, today, today you can have and experience a fresh pouring of God's grace. All of us are floating in the, this ocean of grace that God has given to us. And the question is this, will we receive it? Will we receive the grace that he has given? Will you stand to your feet? And so at this time, the, the altar is open. I would encourage you, if you are one of those who've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, come up and speak to me. Allow me or someone to share with you how this happens. And if you are a Christian who has, it's been a long time since you've had that refreshing pouring of God's grace on you, I would encourage you to come up here and pour your heart out to your Savior. He's, way, he's, he's that close to restoring you. He's that close to giving you a life that you desire, that you want, that you, you covet, and yet you miss out on because you allow sin to keep you away. Because just as David looked, I'm sorry, as God looked at David and he saw a man after God's own heart, your heavenly father is looking down in this worship center and he sees your heart. He doesn't see your head. He doesn't see your eyes. He sees your heart. He sees what you're all about. He knows how the desire that you have to serve God, the desire that you have to, to live out grace, not only receive God's grace, but until we receive God's grace, until we accept God's grace, we'll never, ever give out God's grace. And so as you think about people in your lives that you've not been very gracious to, I promise you, it's because you are not accepting and receiving God's grace. Because when you receive God's grace, you can't help. You can't help but be gracious to the person beside you. You can't help but be gracious to your husband when he says something silly. You can't help but be gracious to your brother or sister who does something idiotic. But if you've never received it, right now you probably have you're like, I still don't understand what you're saying. John 3.16 speaks to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son the biggest act of grace what he give him to die for our sins you see that's what grace is grace is taking that person who who killed my son and making him my son bringing him into my house and loving him and I got to be honest with you every time I share that story I don't know that I've got the ability to do that but you know what the truth of the matter is? Not only does God have the ability, but he did it. See, the whole reason why Jesus died on the cross was for my sins, for your sins. Let's sing about God's amazing grace. As a church, it's our honor to play a small part in all that God is doing in and through your life. And we would love to continue with you on that journey. To find out what your next steps could be in your relationship with Christ, simply go to www.tbccentralia.com forward slash next. You see, here at TBCC, it's our mission to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ who walk by faith and not by sight.